morning, everyone. Good morning. Why did I say good morning? That's a great way to start off, just to see if I'm with it, right? Gosh, I guess I'm so used to preaching on a Sunday morning. So good evening, everyone. It's good to be with you. We are continuing the uh, series on Welcome Holy Spirit, and uh, we're getting to know the Holy Spirit better and better. And I'm going to be speaking on the subject of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 to 25. Uh, Just a short review. We started off with a stranger in town, and uh, I thought that was a great little clip we saw about that. And uh, for many people, the Holy Spirit is a stranger. They're not quite sure who this Holy Spirit is. I remember as a kid, I used to hear about the Holy Ghost, and I didn't want to have anything to do with no ghost, you know. I mean, it was... But uh, we've learned about being born again. We've, we've learned more about being born from above, that the Spirit is the one that is very so involved in all of this. And then the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Jeff did a great teaching on that. And then being filled with the Holy Spirit and under the influence and the wild goose chase that Michael did. And then John Decker with walking in the Spirit. So those are the topics we've been looking at. And they're all various facets and aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So today, we're specifically going to be studying the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians, the the ninefold fruit. And uh, I'm going to have you stay seated and we'll pray after the reading of the scripture. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And I'm going to have you remain seated for now. Father, we just thank you for your word and we pray that you would anoint your word with your Holy Spirit. That you would speak to our hearts and impart your fruit more and more fully in our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the word fruit and the understanding of fruit is used many ways in the scripture. It's the fruit of the vine, the fruit of the earth, the fruit of the womb. Today, we also have the fruit of the Costco store and the fruit of the public shelf. You know, there's some kids in some inner cities, where does fruit come from? It comes from the grocery store. I mean, that's, it's, it's amazing. But actually, it doesn't come from there. It comes from something very organic. Fruit is living and organic. We've heard a lot about organic and eating it the right way these days. But the works of the flesh are the opposite. They're lifeless and they're deadly. Uh, The 18 works of the flesh that are mentioned previously in Galatians... um, are all un, not united and they're all work against, you know, anger works against this, lust works against that, and the, all the different works of the flesh. Whereas the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, it's one singular, it's like a cluster of grapes because it's uh, unified and then there's different facets of the fruit and they all work in harmony with each other. Now the Greek word karpos that we translate fruit usually means fruit in the sense of edible fruits and vegetables. But it can also be translated as offspring, deed, action, result, or profit. In an agrarian society, of course, fruit is a good thing. It is the result of hard work and careful tending. Today, however, we might use fruit in a phrase such as the fruit of our labor to communicate 
the results of our effort that was put into it. Even if we don't harvest strawberries or apples, we can have fruit, something to show for our work in a paycheck, in a finished product, or even a baby. Understanding that fruit in this sense can mean deed or action or result helps make this verse a little bit more personal. The result of the work in the spirit of the believer's life is these things, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These are all the work and the flow of the spirit in our lives. Now, I want to speak just for a second before we get into the nine-fold fruit. I want to talk about character versus charism. Character versus charism. Character is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. That's what we're being talking about tonight, is the character of Christ in us. The ninefold fruit of the Spirit, like a cluster of grapes, are the character qualities of Jesus Christ. And that's in contrast to what would be charism, which is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and that is an extraordinary power or gift, like healing, given a Christian by the anointing of the Holy Spirit for the good of the church. So they're contrasted. Character is the character quality of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit are the character qualities of Christ. And the gifts of the Spirit come from the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Christ to do, good, do, do amazing wonders and signs. And those are also possible by the church. And Jeff's going to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit next week. In Hebrews, to support this, it says, Hebrews 2, 4, it says, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So now we're going to begin walking down the fruit of the Spirit, the character qualities of Jesus Christ in the believer. The first one is love. In Galatians 5.22, love is translated, translated from the Greek word agape. Greek has multiple words for love, as I'm sure you all know, including eros, which is sexual love, and phylos, which is brotherly love. That's where we get the, the phrase for Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Agape is perfect divine love that comes from God and only from God because God is Love. Remember, we were saying a lot about loving kindness. I think the Hebrew word for that is hesed. And it's the combination of, of the two words in, in, in understanding in Hebrew of his love is a form of, flows out in the form of kindness. His loving kindness is better than life. This love for God and others is the result of receiving and experiencing God's agape love for yourself. Jesus encourages his followers, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Dwell in my love. It's like, as a cluster of grapes, stay connected to the vine, so the sap can flow, and the grapes can grow, and the fruit can grow. And then the extension, of course, love one another just as I have loved you. And spread that out. May, may it flow into you and then flow out. That's what the fruit of the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit produces that love within us and then it gets spread to others. Paul in Ephesians 
Ephesians prays this amazing prayer. I remember in seminary, there was a professor that said, do you realize that the Apostle Paul prayed for you? He's prayed for each one of us. And here's where he prays. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know his love that surpasses knowledge. To know his love that surpasses knowing. That you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Wow. That's what Paul prayed for you and for me. Now that description, how wide, how long, how high, how deep, means you're right in the center of it. He's describing that he wants you to be not outside looking in, but in the center dwelling in his love. In 2002, I went scuba diving in Hawaii with my youngest daughter, Crystal. We had gotten the PADI certifications, and I wanted to do a wreck dive, and I wanted to do a deep wreck dive. Normally, recreational diving, you'd go down maybe 60, 70 feet, but we went down 125 feet. And uh, I really had to talk Crystal, Crystal into it, but she agreed to go, mainly because she was afraid I would swim away because I wouldn't have a good scuba buddy. But I remember as we went down, and decom- you know, we get our compression equalization going on, we got down, I remember getting about 60 feet, 70 feet, and I just stopped for a bit and just floated, and I looked in every direction. There was water everywhere. There was a lot of water up that way. And there was a lot of water yet to go to get to this uh, ship that was upside down. And so when you got there, you walked on the bottom of the hull, the propeller sticking out. I managed to get all the way down there. It was, it was amazing. We could only stay down for about 15 minutes. But I was amazed while I was just hovering there that I was just in the middle of this element that's so different than we normally experience. And that's what I think of when I think of being in the center of God's love. The width, the length, the height, and the depth surrounded. We are in him and he is us. We are in him and he is in us. That's the love of God. And as I said, Paul is praying that you will experience God's love by being right in the middle of it. That's the fruit of God's spirit. The second one we're going to talk about is joy. The Greek word is kara, and it's translated joy or delight. That's where, partially where I got the word for my oldest daughter, Carice, I mean K-A-R-I-S-S-E, with a German background. I changed the C-H to a K. But it comes from charis, which means grace. And what's interesting is the root of charis, kar and kara, is the word joy. Because joy comes from Realizing and understanding and experiencing God's grace. And so the word care is translated joy or delight. It is often seen in the Bible along with the word gladness. It is the realization of God's favor and grace in one's life. Biblical joy is happiness in, in the sense if it's not dependent upon our circumstances. We are encouraged in the following scripture from James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials 
of various kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So he wants us to understand joy is something that isn't dependent on circumstances just going uh, perfectly. Because that just joy comes from a different source. It comes from God. Now, one of the, my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and his autobiography is called Surprised by Joy. And I couldn't help but think, as I came to this word, Lewis is so informative in this, because joy is what brought him to the Lord. And he had these experiences over many, many years before he was converted. He would see a beautiful nature scene, and this joy would well up in him, And then he'd kind of try to figure out where it came from, and it would disappear. And then later, he'd be reading a poem from Keats or Wadsworth or somebody. You know, he was a very major literary guy. And this joy would well up in his heart when he read read some poetry. And then he'd try to figure out where it came from, and and it it would be elusive and it would disappear. He spent his whole life, he said, seeking this experience over and over again. And, and there's a lot of description that he does about it in the book, but this is the piece that really got me. It was so powerful. He talks about going into his tool shed. And in his tool shed, there was a hole near the top of the ceiling. And as he looked through the hole, he could... I, excuse me, I, I, I got ahead of myself. He saw this hole at the top of the ceiling. And while in the tool shed, he saw the beam of light coming into the tool shed. And you know how the dust, you can see the dust and you can see the beam. And it's kind of... You put your hand in the light, you know. And so he was contemplating and analyzing this beam of light. But then what he did is he stepped into the beam of light and looked up at the hole. And when he looked through the hole, he saw this beautiful blue sky and these white clouds and this dove. No, wait a minute, that's the slide. Um, But that's what happened. He looked through through this, just like this. He looked through the hole and he saw the blue sky and the clouds and, and, and I think a bird flew by and there were some tree branches. And when he saw God's creation, this joy welled up inside of him. And he had reflection on that, and he realized this was a key to what was going on with him. When he experienced the joy, it was happening to him because he was in the middle of it, like love. He was in the middle of joy, appreciating God. But when he stepped out and tried to analyze it, he was looking at the beam of light. He was trying to analyze joy, and it disappeared. Because he was reflecting on it, and he was analyzing it. Now, there's nothing essentially wrong with doing that. We're rational beings, and that's what, he, what we do. But he called that the difference between enjoyment and contemplation. And it's joy that brought him to Christ, because he, he realized the joy was not in him and sourced from him. The joy was coming to him from God by experiencing creation. That's the joy, the fruit of the Spirit. third one is peace. The biblical concept of peace, arene in Greek, is inclusive of life without conflict, as well as wholeness and harmony with God and others. A life of peace is safe and secure both physically and mentally. It is akin to the Hebrew shalom. Romans says this, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Peace is a result of allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and minds. When we have peace, we are free from fear and worry about finances, our safety, our salvation, our eternal life. 
The fruit of the Holy Spirit is seen in the peace that comes even when our circumstances are far from tranquil. Jesus encourages followers in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me, in me, you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Some places translated tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He is our peace. And he has broken down every wall. He is our peace. Sometimes this word arene for peace is referred to as the weaving threads in a tapestry. That they all come together because peace has to do with harmony. It's not just no conflict. It's not just everything calm. It, it means stuff is in harmony that should be in harmony. And when Paul wrote his letters in the epistles in the New Testament, he often opened or closed with grace and peace to you in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He used the word grace because that's the word the Hellenistic uh, Jews and, and Greeks used because that's charis, which means all this wonderful gifting stuff that we don't deserve. And he used arene to address the Jews because that was their root that related to shalom, grace and peace, Jew and Gentile, Gentile and Jew. When I was doing work with Youth for Christ back in the 70s, we did the a club at a high school. It was uh, Marshall High School in uh, Northern Virginia. For the club, this will age me, we showed the movie The Thief in the Night. It was, um, I think you had to turn the film like this. You know. But afterwards, we all talked with the various students, and I ended up talking with one named Paul Merkel. And I had a great conversation. We had a lot of questions. He was very interested. And I got my Bible out and I came to Galatians and I showed him, hey, you know, if, if you were to accept Christ, you would find that these qualities would grow in your life. Love, joy, peace. And he interrupted before, before I got to the next six. He said, when I see that passage, love, that just means sex to me. Joy, that just means getting high. Peace, that just means I'm bored and there's nothing to do. It really kind of blew me away. And we talked about it, and I realized the natural man doesn't grasp these things. And that the exciting thing was, is as we continued to talk, and I asked him if he wanted to pray to receive Christ so he could discover these things, he actually said yes and prayed with me to receive Christ. And the scripture, favorite passage probably for all of us, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Even if things aren't going well, you can still have peace. I think I told you the last time I preached that when I heard the news that my first wife was, had terminal cancer, I had such peace because it, I knew it was terminal. I knew it was that what was going to happen, but the Lord just imparted peace. It's the peace that surpasses all our understanding. That's the fruit of the Spirit. The next one is patience, macrothumia. It used to be translated as forbearance. How many times have you used the forbearance, word forbearance recently? It is now translated in various biblical translations using other words such as patience, endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, long-suffering, 
and slowness in avenging wrongs. The Greek root of this word relates to two words that mean long and passion. Now remember Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. We talked a little bit about Holy Week, the passion, or the because passio means to suffer. Passion, it, it's kind of a related, long and passion. It also means our passions. Through the Holy Spirit, we are able to wait longer before indulging our passions. We become long-tempered instead of short-tempered. The evidence of the Holy Spirit of the fruit of the Spirit in our life is also seen in our ability to persevere, be patient, steadfast, and long-tempered. And I want to point this out because I'll come back to it. Primarily with people. Patience has to do with people. When you pull the extension cord across the room and it gets caught on the leg of the chair and you have to go back and get it undone, it's not patience you need. It's self-control you need, which we'll get to in a little bit. Patience has to do with relationships and interaction, that kind of thing. I forgot to mention the definition of forbearance, and I did that intentionally. Forbearance, an older word that we don't use that much, is tolerance and restraint in the face of provocation. I decided a good acronym is TRFP. Just remember TRFP, tolerance and restraint in the face of provocation. There's a guy being rather provocative. You may have heard it in terms of you went to get a mortgage or you have a bank loan and you're having trouble making payments. A bank will offer you forbearance. It will allow you to delay your payments. And that's called because they're, you know, they're working with you. It's called forbearance. But it's related to this other word I want to emphasize, because it's so important to me, long-suffering. To suffer means to allow or to bear up under over time. Remember the phrase, let the little children, suffer the little children to come up under me, allow it. But it also has this word, in suffer is sub-bear. It used to be sub-bear, and it became over time suffer, with the F's instead of the B's. A ferry boat, the word ferry, it has that idea of bearing. Because a ferry carries or bears up cars, trucks, and people across the water. The focus is not on the weight or the pain, but on the ability to bear up and keep your life afloat. When we talk about suffering, we tend to talk about all the bad stuff happening. But that's not the point. That's not the point of this in terms of patience. It's the concept of bearing up under it. For the joy set before him, he endured, he bore the cross. He gave the example of patience and tolerance and restraint in the face of provocation. Ephesians puts it this way, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. The next one, Kindness. Remember I said hesed, loving kindness. It's, was tra- it's been translated gentleness in the King James. And later we're going to get to meekness, which uh, they're translating now gentleness in this passage. We'll talk about that. So first of all, kindness. The Greek word krestotes conveys the meaning of moral goodness, integrity, usefulness, benignity, 
In the King James Version, this word was translated gentleness, like I said, which links it to the meaning of a gentleman or a gentlewoman. Someone who behaved properly with moral integrity and kindness. It made me think of Robert and Cora Crowley from Downton Abbey. And then the scripture from 2 Corinthians. We should live in purity and understanding, patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. And that made me think more of John Bates and Anna Bates. That verse. Sincere love is expressed in kindness. Loving kindness. Now, you see this ruin of a major temple. All that marble. Do you know that when they would quarry marble and make a column, they would stamp sincere on it and it would be delivered. And you wanted to make sure, you wanted to make sure your marble when you were building one of these things was stamped sincere because it meant without wax. Sin, S-I-N means without and sere is where we get the word for wax or they Latin wax. So the problem was some people made second and third quality columns and filled them with wax that they could get to be the color of the column. And then when you built your temple and the sun came out, the whole thing melted and fell to the ground. So you wanted to have a sincere piece of marble. Well, that's why we sign our letters over the years, sincerely, Wally Schilling. You know, when you sign that, you're saying, without wax, Michael Thompson, without wax. So you're saying sincere. It's mean, it's, it's, you're sincerely loving and being kind and without plastic, without wax. Goodness. The Greek word agathusene means uprightness of heart and life, goodness and kindness. Now I want to point out, notice some of the words keep being interchanged with each other. That's because, you know, language is simply trying to get at, over time, you know, language usage change, meanings change, and how cultures use words. And they're all trying to get their arms around a certain kind of human experience. And so there's a fluidity with it as to what the Holy Spirit is doing and what word to use to describe that. Goodness in this is, you, is seen in our actions not just in some how being good or he looks good or she looks good. It has to do more with proactively doing things. This word relates to not only being good but also doing things. It may be expressed particularly in generosity and in hospitality. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Well, notice they just called righteousness, Ephesians, Paul just called righteousness and truth. A fruit of the Spirit. It's not part of the nine that we're talking about mainly, but it's still a fruit of God's Spirit in the believer's life. The contemporary English version of Second Thessalonians highlights this meaning. We pray for God's power to help you do all the good things you hope to do, and your faith makes you want to do. I think that's powerful. My uncle used to say, when I became a Christian... I could do anything I want. But my want-tos had changed. But the Holy Spirit, by faith, applies that ability to do that and to do good works of kindness. Through the Holy Spirit's work in the Christian's lives, they are upright in heart and they do good things. And I want to just do a little parenthetical about Aristotle and what's called his Nicomachean Ethics. 
I, I, I finally said, I have to look up what Nicomachean ethics are. It turns out that his son and his father were named Nicomaeus. <laughs> and it's just a term meaning that it, the, his ethics, 10 volumes, were dedicated to his son, Nicomaeus. And maybe his son edited them and uh, his father was also named that. But there are a particular kind of ethics that he wrote about. And he argues that human happiness chiefly depends upon a person's character, which is formed by making good choices and developing the virtues necessary for happiness. And over time, those good choices make etches and markings and engravings in your character. And then you continue to make choices that way. And that's what produces the good life. He wrote a lot about a lot of things, not the good, bad, and the ugly, but he wrote about the truth, the good, and the beautiful. And uh, he particularly, the one here about ethics, has to do with what is the good. Truth, metaphysical, rational truth, beauty, nature, music, um, all the different things in art. But what is the good? If you wanted to make Aristotle's day, you wanted to do something about the good. And what it was is you led a life well-lived through practiced virtue. Now, the reason I bring this up, and I, I recommend to you highly, Hillsdale College, they have all sorts of online courses, and they have an online course about Aristotle and his Nicomachean ethics. What's interesting is that he, Aristotle, lived before Christ, and yet in his philosophy, in understanding human nature and understanding how God created us in his image, he learned a lot about how all it works. But scripture makes it clear it's really only possible to come close to living a virtuous life with character through the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Faithfulness. The Greek word pistis is the belief in God and the conviction that Jesus is the Messiah through whom we obtain eternal salvation. Faithfulness comes from the same word uh, as faith does and is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives over time. Faithfulness is a character trait that combines dependability and trust based on our confidence in God and his eternal faithfulness. It's exactly the same word. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. This is interesting because faith is both a gift of the Spirit in the list and a fruit of the Spirit. Same word in Galatians 5.22 as in 1 Corinthians 12.9. You see, faith can be imparted as a gift for a specific moment or need. You're just gifted with faith to believe that a certain thing is going to happen, that someone's going to be healed, that you have a word of prophecy, that you have a word of knowledge. Something miraculous happens because God just imparts faith, and that, that's a gift of the Spirit. But the same word is used for the experience of over time developing, and we use the word faithfulness to distinguish it. It's something that grows, like fruit grows. It is also basically a character quality as I said, developed over time. Gentleness. Remember, we, we found at the beginning that kindness was sometimes called gentleness in the King James. And 
Meekness, which is what this one used to be named in the King James, they now name gentleness. Here's why. It was translated meekness in the King James, but because being meek seemed weak, modern translations of the Bible use gentleness to mean a mildness of disposition rather than weak, a mildness of disposition. But I think they should have stuck with meek, and there's a reason why. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary explains, meekness does not identify the weak, but more precisely, actually the strong, who have been placed in a position of weakness, where they persevere without giving up. The use of the Greek word when applied to animals makes this clear, for it means tame when applied to animals. In other words, such animals have not lost their strength, but have learned to control the destructive instincts that prevent them from living in harmony with others. So in the previous slide, you saw the little girl with, be gentle with the kitty cat, be gentle. But now the kitty cat's grown up, and the girl's a little bigger. But that wouldn't happen, except for a tame, trained lion, a meek lion, so to speak. Jesus himself describes himself as gentle in Matthew. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. However, in King James it said, I am meek and lowly in heart. We miss the meaning when we use gentle, and Charles Wesley didn't help. I mean, it's a good hymn for children's church. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, Look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity. Suffer me to come to thee. It's okay theology, but it's not really the definition of who Jesus is and meek. In Numbers it says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were on the face of the earth. But Moses was meek, but not weak. Neither Moses nor Jesus were weak, but they were both meek. Meekness is power and strength under control. I could call 10,000 legions, come down off the cross. As Jenna said, he chose to commend his spirit, commit his spirit to the Lord, and lay his life down for us. Meeking horses gives us a clue. Uh, when you train a horse, when you're a Roman soldier and you're riding horses into battle, you need to train them to be able to go into anything and you need to train them about fire and you need to train them to not have their fight or flight thing go on. And so what they would do is they would be saddled up and the soldier would be on the horse and another soldier would take a torch at night, maybe even also in the day, and it would pass the burning torch underneath the belly of the horse. Another soldier would take it on the other side. And they would pass this torch underneath until the horse actually stayed there. And when they got to the place where they could do that without the horse starting off, bolting, it was said that the horse was meeked. Because now it was under the control of the rider and the horse under control of itself not to bolt. Now what's interesting too is when Jesus came to Mary and Martha after Lazarus had died, and they were before Lazarus's tomb, it says, after he had, you know, I am the resurrection and the life, and all the things he said, he went before the tomb, and it says, when he stood before the tomb, the scripture says he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit at the grave of Lazarus. Now, the Greek words there, 
mean this. He did this like a horse. It says he snorted. You know, like a horse might do, stomp its feet, you know, like the lone ranger as it gets up on its hind legs and paws the air and snorts. Or the horses do that before battle. It was all that power in Jesus as divinity staring death down and the horrible thing that death has done. And it also says he wept. And yet he controlled all that with meekness and then called Lazarus, come out. That's strength under control. That's meekness. It's a good thing. The last one is self-control, sometimes translated, in the King James translated, temperance. The Greek word egkratia is the ability to control one's body and sensual appetites and desires, physically and mentally, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can see in that word, ego is, is the word for I in Greek, and kratia is the word for power. I have the power to control. Self-control relates to both specifically chastity, sexual things, and sobriety. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Particularly moderation in eating and drinking. Self-control is the opposite of the works of the flesh that indulge the sensual appetites. Paul says this earlier, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not able to do what you want. Remember I said earlier, self-control of appetites, your passions, versus patience with people. They're related sometimes. I mean, you need to self-control your temper when you're having a conversation with someone that maybe be a little wanting to move towards heat, but you have a long temper instead of a short temper. Here's the paradox. It's easier to control yourself if you don't control yourself. Now, what do I mean by that? Is instead, self-control comes best when you don't control yourself and you actually let Jesus and the Holy Spirit control you. Now, there's a, you get what I mean there. There's a play on that. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice it's put both ways in Scripture. Crucify the flesh as if you're doing the killing, but it's kind of hard to, you know, nail the nails into... How do you... You can nail your feet. You can nail your hand. How do you nail... How do you crucify? Well, it's a spiritual thing that Paul is using by analogy. So you can crucify your flesh or you can simply die to the demands of the flesh. It's an understanding that we die. We don't just try to control it, keep it under control. And we live by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit. And then the fruit of the Spirit, in this particular case, is self-control along with all the others. So in conclusion, <clears throat> the fruit of the Spirit is the character of Jesus Christ in you. We often call this process sanctification, but that's a whole other way of describing it. But for the moment, I want you to do something with me. I want you to pick an athlete. Or a musician. Or an artist. Someone that you know, maybe you really kind of emulate in some way. Maybe you want to play tennis like that person. Or golf like that person. Or football. Maybe you want to be able to sing like Josh Groban or whatever. So pick whoever you want. And imagine trying to do this by just following them around and copying them. I 
wondering, okay, let me just listen again how Josh Groban sings that song again. Oh, gosh, he's doing it in a foreign language again. I can't. That's going to be... Or, or, you know, when I first thought of this illustration, I used Tiger Woods. That was back when he was young. He was a little bit more squeaky clean. And uh, he was so good. And and so the point is, you imagine your, your, your person, and then what if we could... You know, distill their abilities down to some kind of pill. I really don't want to say jab because I, I just don't want to go there. Some kind of pill, you know, that you could take. And it would give you the abilities of that person. And all of a sudden, you know, you know I, I think I'm going to kind of hit a golf ball. I think I want to get a football and throw it like Tom Brady. Whatever person you pick. What if that person's abilities could be in you, inside? It's a totally different game if you're trying to copy it with your abilities or lack thereof, or if you have that person's ability in you. So that's why I think what we're really talking about is not WWJD. We're not talking, I mean, I understand why they were doing that, but, you know, what would Jesus do? We, copying him is going to be rather difficult. So I thought, well, how, what could I put in contrast? How about L-J-D-I-Y-B-T-H-S? <laughs> It won't fit on the wristband, but it goes like this. Let Jesus dwell in you by the Holy Spirit. I think that might be more theologically correct. So here's what I'd like to do. I want us to pray, but I want us to pray in a certain way. So if we would stand up, I want you to just trust me in this is what we're going to do. <clears throat> we're going to go into C.S. Lewis's tool shed for a minute in prayer. We're just going to call it our prayer closet. And I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to just imagine that you're looking up at the ceiling through that hole, through that beam of light. And we're just going to call that beam of light the Holy Spirit. And you're looking into the glory of God. We're looking into the face of Christ, the glory of God. And I just want you to lift your hands and hold your palms up. And I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit, along with me, to fill you with the fruit of the Spirit that we just talked about more and more as the days go by. Father, we just ask right now that your Holy Spirit would fill us, would pour through that imaginary hole we're talking about, would pour through your Spirit into our hearts and minds in new and fresh ways. We just ask the Lord right now, and, and, and you probably know, which fruit of the Spirit do you need to see manifest in your life today, right now? You probably know what's been going on this week. Perhaps it's patience you need, long-suffering. Maybe it's love. Perhaps it's self-control. You need to quit trying to control yourself and fix it because you just keep messing it up. Ask the Holy Spirit to impart to you self-control. Maybe you need to be kinder to someone. Kinder to your spouse, kinder to your kids. What is the Holy Spirit telling you? Just welcome the Holy Spirit to allow the fruit of the Spirit to be more and more manifest in your life as you live your life day to day in His presence, in the center, in the middle of the width and the length and the height and the depth of his love. In Jesus' name.